Welcome to the Electric Rodeo, an adult toy megastore podcast about sex, pleasure, relationships, and everything in between. I'm your host, Emma Hewitt, a sex educator and sex toy enthusiast. Every episode, I take a deep dive into a fascinating new topic, talk to experts, and answer common sex questions. Because sex is normal, messy, pleasurable, intimidating, and a hell of a lot of fun. Let's take a ride. If you find yourself being tied to the bedpost, worshipping a leather-clad body, or wearing a chastity device in your daydreams, you are not alone. Research suggests that people are kinkier than you might think. A 2017 study found that 50% of the general population in the US has tried some form of BDSM, and that a lot of our sexual fantasies revolve around some sort of kink or fetish. While there are some activities that are better left as fantasy, so long as it's consensual, legal, safe, and not causing harm, then there is no problem with finding ways to live out your fantasies in real life if you choose to. And that's where a dominatrix can help. The last thing I want is for you to be in pain, uncomfortable, suffering. You know, there's intentional suffering, which of course we're hoping Mm -hmm. to achieve (laughs) to a point. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't want the unintentional stuff because I've heard a lot of horror stories. In this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Audrey Fattel. She's a professionally trained dominatrix in Melbourne, creating bondage, discipline and fetish scenes with her clients. Audrey told me that she was a late starter to BDSM. While she has always been drawn to the aesthetics of it, think leather, latex, stilettos and all of that good stuff, it wasn't until her 30s that she decided to explore working as a dominatrix. But with no personal experience and not being a part of the lifestyle scene, she learned to become a dom by doing a traineeship, and she says she went from zero to a hundred real quick. In this episode, we get an insight into what a session with a professional dom looks like, chat about what her clients look for in a session, including her famous milking machine, and discuss some of the myths and misconceptions about BDSM, because there are quite a few. But we begin with the traineeship and how Audrey got her start in the industry. At the time, I approached a dungeon in Melbourne called the Correction Centre, which no longer exists. And it's a great name. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> and I did what was called a traditional traineeship or an apprenticeship, which involves sitting at the dungeon for anywhere, you know, between six months, a year, some places it can take 18 months to two years and you sit and learn you watch you go into sessions you start to get trained they start gently and it slowly kind of develops until they decide that you're you know officially qualified to be a proper dominatrix so yeah that's how I did it but there's only one dungeon left in Melbourne now Mm. I think there's maybe only one left in Sydney one in Adelaide and so the opportunities for that type of learning are much less available to people. So, yeah, it's a little bit harder these days. So how common is kink, fetish and fantasy play, do you think? What type of people are you dealing with on a day-to-day basis? Well, I think it's a lot more common than people would imagine it to be. And I think it's becoming more so because of mainstream media has kind of picked it up as a bit of a thing over the last few years. People can access kink and fetish pornography in ways that didn't used to be Mm. accessible. So I think if you talk to anyone, it's pretty rare to meet someone who would identify as being completely vanilla. I think most people have even just like a tiny little kink, whether it's something as straightforward as, you know, spanking or a bit of light bondage or something like that. It's really more about exposure to it and the opportunity 
As for types of people, I don't know that there are types of people. I think it's an incredibly broad spectrum of people who are into it. Yeah, I've heard the myth that it's all older, upper to middle class men that are very powerful at work and want the role reversal. I think that's a really common perspective. It is. And there's definitely a proportion of that, but it's certainly not the only thing. I mean, I have clients who are on pensions or young clients who have to save up for months for a session, that type of thing. So there's really no kind of true definition of a client Now, on your website, you say that you adhere to three particular styles of sessions. So femdom, strict discipline, and fetish as well. Can you quickly describe each of these for me, as well as a little explanation of the term scene? Okay, so I like to differentiate between those things because each of them has a different sort of energy or aspect to it that a client will kind of seek out. So for example, femdom, I use that term because that to me describes the kind of traditional dominatrix slave dynamic that a lot of people recognize when they think of BDSM. Yeah. So, you know, I might be in leather or latex and wielding the whip and getting them on their knees and, you know, doing all of that sort of thing. And they're in the the submissive kind of role. And within the context of that, a lot of things can happen, but it's about a dynamic. When I use discipline or strict discipline, what I'm talking about are more scenes that are involved in what I call behaviour modification. So it might be clients who seek out things like corporal punishment scenes, which Mm. are very common sort of things. So it's not so much necessarily the traditional dominatrix strutting around the dungeon, but, you know, the focus on the scene is you uh, training, punishing, controlling with traditional forms of discipline. And... When I say fetish, they might have a high heel or a boot fetish or a stocking Mm -hmm. fetish or rubber fetish, a medical fetish. You know, they're endless. They can all kind of cross over, but they can all be sort of approached quite separately as well. And I tend to use scene because it kind of, to me, it is when the door shuts, when the client enters the room or when I enter the room, the music is on, the lights are low. You know, I want it to kind of feel like a scene almost out of a movie. It's a scene outside of time and reality. So that's just a a personal preference to use that word. Now let's talk a little bit about your sessions. I'm sure that they vary a lot based on your client's needs. So how do you work with each of these people to understand exactly what it is they're wanting from a session? What does that negotiation entail? Yeah, so it's changed a lot over the years. It's very different now that I'm independent as compared to when I was in a professional dungeon In the dungeon setting, you know, it's a bit of a revolving door. The clients come in, you meet them in the intro room. You've got, you know, five minutes maybe max to find out what it is they want. You know, ask a few important questions such as, you know, any health issues, uh, what are your hard limits, Mm -hmm. etc. And then you've got basically 10 minutes to create a scene, walk in the door and and off you go. But uh, becoming independent, one of the reasons I wanted to become independent was because I needed more than that. I needed to delve deeper with my clients. I needed to find out more about what drove people. And now I give a lot more time to that kind of pre-session conversation. For example, I have like a six-page pre-session document that I send new clients that's basically got all of the questions that I feel I need to kind of get an insight into what's going on for them psychologically, what their needs are, what they're hoping to explore in the session. So, you know, is it more about the psychological elements or is it more about exploring kinky activities? You know, is it a mixture of both? And that evolves 
you can go into it thinking one thing and it changes to another. Clients typically have some difficulty when it comes to articulating what it is that they need. So um, sometimes you're kind of going in a little bit blind and you discover things together as you go. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But the difference between five minutes and a full six pages is yeah. is vast, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. And um, quite a few clients have been taken aback by it and sort of reflect on how challenging it has been for them to have to sit and kind of work through a lot of that mm. stuff just because they've never given thought to it before, you know. And it's just such an important step before anything like this happens, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So does this process include determining a safe word at this point as well? Or do you kind of look into those sorts of things on more of a session by session basis? Yeah, it's not generally a discussion I have until basically the last thing that I say to them before we go into the session. And in terms of what the safe word or signal is, it kind of, it changes in each session. Sometimes I ask the client what they're used to using. So do they prefer to use mercy mistress? Would they like the, you know, the stoplight, green, yellow, red? Mm -hmm. Or it's just, you need to just use your words. You know, I just say to them, you need to tell me if something's not working for you. And, you know, the last thing I want is for you to be in pain, uncomfortable, suffering, you know, there's intentional suffering, which of course we're hoping mm-hmm. to achieve <laughs> to a point. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't want the unintentional stuff because I've heard a lot of horror stories from clients who have seen DOMs who haven't, you know, been tapped in enough to what they're experiencing or haven't given them permission to to be able to stop the scene or, or ask, you know. Mm. And I sort of always want people to know that consent can be revoked at any time. So even if, you know, we've agreed to something five minutes in, doesn't mean that that can't be taken back for whatever reason. So, yeah, it's organic for me, Mm. depending on the client. So is there a vetting process for clients as well before you even get to this stage? So to ensure that you're both feeling comfortable with each other and safe as well. And of course, to ensure that the client actually is getting from you what they need. Yes, I have a very stringent vetting process in place that vet out time wasters more than anything. So for me, the first introduction to me comes via a form on my website, which gives me what I need to know as a starting point. And many times people don't make it past that because they either don't fill out the form the right way, they're asking for something that I don't do, which is clearly stated on my website. And you start to get a sense from people what their approach is to engaging with a dominatrix. Then after that point, I then implement a deposit. Then comes a six-page intake form. So basically, that's my vetting process. If someone can get through all of those steps without complaining, without, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, without tapping out, then at that point, I'm pretty happy that there's someone I'm at least happy to meet. And like any human interaction, sometimes you want it to work and it doesn't or the chemistry's not there. And you really just don't know until you kind of, you're in the room with the person doing the things. Mm. Yeah. But at the very least, you want them to walk out feeling like they've had a positive experience. So whether they come back and see you on the regular Mm -hmm. is another thing. How many of your clients become regular clients? Are there many that are sort of like just one-offs or is it more of like a long-term engagement? Well, for me, I've sort of gotten myself to a point where the majority of my clients are regulars. Mm -hmm. So I'd say 95% of my clients are are regulars. wow. Mm. In fact, like I go through phases like now where I'm not even taking on new clients because I've kind of got enough regular submissives to keep me 
in business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Quality over quantity. For me, that's just how I manage myself and manage burnout or avoid burnout, I should yeah. say. But there's definitely a large client base out there who are one-offs or they like to see different mistresses or they're just dipping their Mm -hmm. toes in, trying things out. And then you get the people who you can tell right from the get-go that they're really seeking a relationship with someone. And I tend to be a little bit more dismissive of the ones who are like, hey, Audrey, I saw you've got a milking machine. I'd like to try it out. (laughs) You know, that's that's like one of the really common things I get. When I get that, I'm just like, well, you know, (laughs) you're not really buying what I'm selling you here. So like... (laughs) Now, what are some of the main requests that your clients have? Are there any common fetishes or scenes that you get requested quite a bit in your work? That has changed quite a bit over the years. Certainly as a, a dominatrix in a dungeon, you you get a lot of requests for like foot fetish sessions and mm-hmm. tie and tease sessions. They're kind mm-hmm. of, they're like your bread and butter a little bit, I think, in the early mm. stages of your career. I don't do either of those things anymore. They just don't float my boat. So I'm quite specific on my website about the type of things that I enjoy and things for me like extended bondage scenes and breath play and corporal punishment and sort of pain play focused scenes. They're the things that I enjoy. So I endeavour to make that clear in my advertising and because of that, you generally attract that type of client. So there's someone for everyone and there's plenty of people for each fetish. So it's really just about getting enough experience to know what you enjoy most as the dominatrix. And then you try and establish those relationships with the clients. Now, is there anything that you don't offer them that you get requested a lot outside of, you know, the the foot fetish? Yeah, I think for me, the main thing that I come up against is the the more sexual aspects of of seeing a dominatrix because it's a very broad spectrum when it comes to how much sexual stuff is part of what you do from one end of the extreme where it's completely non-sexual through to incorporating a full-service sex work. And I think that more and more so, the younger generation coming through who have grown up being exposed to femdom porn just assume that the more sexual stuff is part of the experience. And so, I mean, if you get an erection while it's happening, <laughs> that's all well and good. And um, I'm happy to work with that, but that's that's not the focus of my practice. Mm-hmm. I like to play with arousal as a form of torment, but, you know, you get a lot of people who just go, oh, you know, I just want you to tie me down and edge me for two hours or something. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of anything more boring than that. So, Yeah. <laughs> That's fair enough. So on that note, where does sex fit into what you do? Is there a point where it is about sexual pleasure for your clients or is it more of a solely psychological experience? I'd say it's probably more than half. Most of my clients find what I'm doing to them in the session to be sexually arousing, but it's not their main focus. Okay. I have a few clients who it's just not even part of the equation. Like, for example, say someone who enjoys corporal punishment, they're there for the pain, you know, they're Mm. there for the experience of the pain. But other than that, I'd say it's at least present to an extent with most people. So one of the questions I have on my form is that how important is an orgasm for you in session? 
Either it's not important, I don't mind, or it's very important. And I'm happy to work with anyone on that spectrum. The thing that for me is most important for my potential clients to understand is that I'm not going to engage in any normative sexual activities with them. Mm-hmm. It comes with consequences as well, you know. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> so it's a spectrum and... Yeah. I mean, as I say to people, the only interest I have in your sexual arousal is how I can use it to manipulate you. And, you know, that's not necessarily going to be pretty <laughs> yeah, for them. That is such a you know, great if I'm sentence. Do- yeah, if I'm doing stuff to them and they happen to have an erection, well, that's mm-hmm. just going to be that little bit extra painful now, isn't it? Now, you talk about your approach to BDSM being something that is deeply psychological and transformative. Mm. Can you explain why? So what are people trying to gain or release or work through when they come to see you? Yeah, it's a, that's a tricky one to answer in that it's, uh, I can make assumptions about what people are trying to work through or achieve through a session. But I suppose when I say that, what I mean is that I'm really more interested in what's happening in your head rather than what's happening in your pants. I want the experience to challenge them, whether that's the psychological kind of elements of control and manipulation. I just want people to go beyond their dicks, basically. It's so much deeper than just getting off or having an orgasm. Clearly, some people want to come because they need stress relief. I suppose that's probably one of the most common things that people express to me that they have going back to that high-powered job thing, whether it's high-powered or high-paid or whatever, but they have stresses in their everyday life. So they know that coming in and stepping outside of reality for an hour or two with me means that they can let go of that. And second to that is probably people that want to tap into the endorphin rush of it. So the people that seek out pain play and other sort of styles of play that push their edges or tap into a fear-based response. That's about kind of getting this sort of endorphin rush that gives them a high when they leave the scene. And there would definitely be a percentage of people who are working through some type of personal trauma, which I'm not necessarily privy to, but I'm sure it's present for a lot of people. I think a lot of people in, in BDSM and SNM are probably working through something, but I don't necessarily need to know about that. It's kind of complicated. Now, aftercare is such an important part of BDSM to ensure that everyone's needs are met while they are coming down after a scene. So how do you approach aftercare with your clients and why is it so important? You know, my thing is that I've got time to talk to them before the session starts and then I have time to debrief with them when the session is over. So, for example, they're always offered a shower, whether they take it or not. Mm-hmm. And I will just give them the opportunity to sort of hang around and, and chat. Sometimes it's a couple of minutes. There's certainly a lot of people who want to just pull on their pants and run out the door. Yeah. For them, post-session conversations not really something that they're able to cope with. Mm-hmm. And then you get others who need to sit around, have a drink, have a chat for 15, 20 minutes after the session. So I've basically just set my practice up so that I'm able to accommodate that for people. And what about for you? What does aftercare for a dom look like? Well, I think I get quite a lot out of the experience of coming down with them after the session as well. You know, it's it's probably quite a lot about me too, just having that sort of, oh, you know, here we are. How about those crazy things we've just done (laughs) for the last two (laughs) hours? But I'm quite delicate, I like to say, because I only do one session a day. 
and I only avail myself to sessions four days a week. Mm -hmm. So for me, I give myself a lot of time and space before and after a session to either gear myself up for it or to come down after it. And, you know, there are certain things I like doing. You know, I enjoy getting massages and having baths and going shopping and eating nice food and stuff like that. So, yeah, generally after a session, you know, I like to take my time cleaning my dungeon, listening to music. Those things kind of help me decompress after what can be pretty intense and exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions about those that are kind of involved in the BDSM world from the types of relationships that they have with other people down to things like their mental well-being. So what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about kink? What do you think people tend to get wrong about the people that are involved in the scene? Well, again, I think it is changing a little bit. I think people's perceptions of the type of people who get involved is probably becoming a little less judgmental, I suppose. I think that a lot of people perceive clients of professional dominatrices as being simpy, weak, defective, submissive men. And well, there's probably an element of that. I wouldn't say it's the major <laughs> representation of clients. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think a lot of people, if they haven't had personal experience with it, they tend to think that, firstly, that it's probably like really dark and twisted and kind of fucked up. And the people that mm. come to see us are potentially scary or dangerous because they're into this like weird stuff. And that really couldn't be further from the truth. You know, one of the things I say to people most often, you would be surprised how much we laugh in the dungeon and there's a lot of laughter and a lot of lightness. And I just say to people that my clients are the people you work with. They're your family, they're your friends, and they've just got this thing that they need to explore and they found a way to do it. And what do your friends and family think about what you do? Are you quite open about it? I mean, you're you're on the website. We can see you on there. What do they think? Look, it's been a bit of a journey for me in regards to being out and public. Like in the early stages of my career, I started 11 years ago in my traineeship and I was very private about it then. I was on the website, like I did have my face on the website. Mm -hmm. I wasn't particularly worried about family seeing that because I'm not from Melbourne and I think about my immediate family and there's just there's no way they'd be accessing that kind of thing. So I wasn't particularly worried about it. But even some of my best girlfriends, I didn't tell for a number of years. I'd say about maybe 30% of people I knew were aware of what I did. And then I had a bit of a break after about five years and my other career was kind of taking off. Then when I came back a few years ago, I gave up my other career and I was really going to make a go of being like a proper full-time independent dominatrix. I have slowly started to tell just about everyone. There's still some family who don't know. And that's really just about the fact that I haven't seen them in person. And I'd rather talk to them about it rather than on text or a phone call. But I'd say that most other people know. And everyone's been incredibly open and supportive about it. And if someone isn't, I haven't heard about it. So that's probably one of the benefits of it becoming a bit more mainstream, I suppose. Now, you have been in the industry for a long time. Have you found that your interests have changed during this period? Are there things that you did when you first started that you've just lost interest in over the time or vice versa, things that have become maybe more appealing to you? Yes, uh, very much so. And I think that's partly because it takes a long time to develop confidence in your skill set. 
So from a technical perspective, as well as from a persona perspective, so I would shy away from certain things, uh, the more intense styles of play, like heavy bondage and needles and medical scenes and, and things like that, breath play. And, you know, you sort of tap into the, I guess, what you might be perceived as lighter styles of domination. Role play definitely was a big thing for me back in the early days. I actually quite enjoyed it because I had a bit of a history of, you know, drama and wanting to be an actor and all of those kind of things. So I kind of tapped into that and I sort of had a look that kind of worked with that, you know, being the disciplinarian or the, the boss or the teacher. And as I've evolved, I've really let go of that stuff. Like I don't do role play anymore at all. For me, it's much more about being authentic. It's much more about being Audrey in the session. If you're coming in to have a session with me, you're coming in to session with me. As people like to say, you're not a fetish dispenser. So that's been the biggest evolution for me. So are you still training? Like, is this an ongoing thing? Do you still do workshops and mentorships to keep developing your skills? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I love it. I've just always loved the process of learning and growing and developing my practice. And so, yeah, I regularly engage in workshops and training. Unfortunately, the last couple of years, most of that has been online, which, well, I say unfortunately, it's actually given me a lot of access to people and educators that I would never have previously had because they were forced to do things in a different way. And so that's kind of connected us in a worldwide kind of network of education and teachers and training, which has just been incredibly valuable. The idea of mentorship and reaching out and making connections with those more established and longer term DOMs is something that's very important for me. And I think if you stop learning in this industry, if you stop wanting to develop, you kind of go stale. And so I don't see that ever stopping. Now, how can someone who is interested in BDSM and fetish play start exploring if they don't necessarily have access to a kink community? What do you think is a good starting point for people? Yeah, it's very accessible now, as we said online. So there's a lot of communities and a lot of ways to network and meet people, which is good. And it also comes with a lot of risks like anything. So you have to be a little bit careful, but it's certainly a good way to make connections. When I started in my career, I joined FetLife, which I think at the time had mm-hmm. 300,000 people. And now mm-hmm. it's it's well in the millions. I don't know if it's five, six, yeah. seven, eight million people. So, I mean, it's a cesspit, but it's a good place for people to kind of like take it with a grain of salt. But you can definitely make some connections. I actually have one of my clients, one of my submissives who's become a bit of a lifestyle sub. I met him on FetLife 11 years ago. He was a baby boy and he's still serving me to this day. Mm. So there's some value in it. But, you know, most communities, most states would have events. You know, for us, we've got Kinkfest, which happens every year. Hasn't happened for the last two years, obviously, understandably. There's an expo, there's classes, and those are available to lifestylers and people that are interested and also people wanting to develop their professional practice. So there are lots of ways to start to dip your toe in, as scary as it might be. Yeah, that's Mm. the thing, right? It does seem very intimidating, I think, when you're on the outside. Yes, absolutely. But we all went through that, you know? We all started Mm. somewhere. Yeah, of course, true. Yeah. Audrey, I have to pick up on your mention of having a lifestyle sub. Can you explain a bit more about what's involved in that kind of relationship? Okay, so for me, when I use the term lifestyle, it's a service submissive role, meaning that if they have access to me outside of the professional setting, it's only really in the context of them helping me in some way, shape or form. It doesn't look like 
a dynamic that you would expect to see in the dungeon in that I'm not doing things to them. But when it ebbs into a lifestyle, it's really just that I've gotten to know that person over many years and they have expressed a desire to help me. And eventually I have kind of let them sneak their way into my life. But I'm still very protective of my boundaries. And it's just that they're like, Mistress, can I do this for you? Or can I buy you this thing? Or can I help you with that? And I'm like, yes, that's fine. Thank you. Right. Now, what about someone that is interested in exploring their dominant side? How can they learn about becoming more dominant or even becoming a dominatrix? Yes. So much like I was talking about before with having access to a lot of stuff online, Mm. there's actually really a lot of stuff online for people now that's accessible for non-pros as well. We got connected here, you with me, through Lola Jean in New York, Mm. who I did uh, an interview with her on a podcast. She has done a great series of educational classes over the last couple of years called Seven Days of Domination, Mm -hmm. um, where she invites a a pro-dom to teach a class on different types of things. And that's available to pros and regular people alike. So there's a few people in Melbourne who run courses. And while they're never going to be as comprehensive as doing a traineeship in a dungeon, for me, I always say to people, if you can go down that path at this stage, I would say that's the way to do it because you'll get an education like no other, like you'll be fully equipped to deal with it. If you kind of go down the other route, seeking out classes here and there and doing things, it will be difficult to develop your confidence and experience doing that way. However, I know some people who are very good dominatrices who have taken that path. So it's more accessible than it ever has been. So Mm. Mm. my one piece of advice though is don't do something you're not trained to do. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard a lot of horror stories about people going to see doms who just had no idea what they were doing and they've ended up injured and or traumatised by the experience. But it's not an overnight thing. It's not a one-year thing. It's not a two-year thing. It's an ongoing journey and it takes years to get to the point where you can feel really like able to manage most things that come your way. Amazing. Audrey, thank you so much for being on the show with me today and giving us a peep into your fascinating world. It's been amazing. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Emma. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Electric Rodeo podcast for Adult Toy Megastore, produced by Sound Cartel. Follow Electric Rodeo free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more sex and relationships explained, follow at Electric Rodeo Podcast on Instagram. Electric Rodeo Podcast.